Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures together from Genesis to Revelation. This is an ongoing podcast being recorded currently in 2022. So if you're listening and wondering where the rest of the scriptures are, they are coming. I am recording a little bit at a time as I can in between my full-time job and doing this on the side. As always, we will be reading through the scriptures and I will be stopping along the way frequently to ask questions. These questions are not my own commentary. They are not my own thoughts on the scriptures, but they're questions to get you thinking about the scriptures, thinking about what God is telling you about his word, how to interpret it. The purpose of these questions is to make sure that you are interacting with scripture on your own and really sitting and thinking critically about what God's word says. So I'm so glad that you're here on this journey with me, and I hope God will speak to you today through his word. We are reading currently through the New Living Translation, so if you have your Bible, you can follow along or just listen however you want to interact with this episode today. We are still reading through 1 Samuel. We read the first half last time, chapters 1 through 15, and this time we will finish 1 Samuel. If you remember, in the first half of the book, we saw the rise and fall of King Saul. And we left off right before they were going to anoint a new king. So that's where we'll pick up today. As we start the final section of First Samuel, which is the dissolution of Saul's reign. So let's begin with First Samuel 16. Samuel anoints David as king. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. Okay, so pause there. What's going on in this section? Why is God having to anoint a new king? Why was Samuel nervous about Saul, about how Saul would react when he found out Samuel was going to anoint a new king? Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, so pause there. What do you think Eliab looked like? 
Why do you think Samuel looked at him and thought he was definitely the son God was going to anoint as king? And then what was God's response? What did we learn about God in his response in verse 7? How does God see people? How does God see you? How does the way God sees people differ from how you and I see each other? Through our relationship with God, how does he allow us to see people differently? See people more like how he sees them? Verse 8, Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Jesse didn't even present his youngest son to Samuel? Why didn't he go get his youngest son and say, Hey, we're doing this sacrifice. Why don't you come with us? If none of the other sons were chosen by God, do you think that this other son is going to be the one who's chosen? Verse 12, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Okay, so pause there. Who was anointed by God? Is David a surprising choice? Do you think Jesse and Samuel expected one of the older, stronger sons to be chosen and anointed? What do you remember about Saul, the previous king? What was he like physically? What did he look like? Was he strong or was he small? What did he look like? And then compare him to what we already know of David. What are the differences? What are the possible similarities that we're already seeing between these two kings? Why do you think God chose the youngest son as the one to be king? The next section is David serves in Saul's court. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, and you will soon be well again. All right, said Saul. Find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, 
One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, Send me your son David the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul, along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor-bearer. Okay, so pause there. How did God arrange it so that David would end up in Saul's court? What new information have we learned about David? Who he is, what he looks like, his character? What have we learned about the relationship so far between David and Saul? Verse 22. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 16. One thing I haven't asked about is this tormenting spirit. How do you feel about that and the fact that it came from God? What is the tormenting spirit, and why do you think God sent it to Saul? This is one of those interesting things in the Bible that may be difficult to understand. What is this spirit, and why would God send it? But these are good questions to ask and really sit with and think about. Why would God send this spirit upon Saul? What do you know about Saul? What about his past? What about his history? What about his present? What is he doing now? And what is God trying to accomplish? How do all these things play into the decisions God might make? Okay, now we can start chapter 17. And chapter 17 is going to be a very familiar chapter to some of you. It's a famous story that Christians and non-Christians know. So if you've heard it before, as always, I will ask you to look at it with fresh eyes and in the context of this book, because oftentimes these very famous stories get read on their own. But let's look at it in the context of what 1 Samuel is telling us. And if you've never heard it before, well, this is a great story, and I think you'll really enjoy this part of 1 Samuel because it's very exciting. And this is the story of David and Goliath. And I want you to ask yourself this question as we're reading it. Why is this story important in David's life as God is trying to prepare him to be king? Why would this be an important part of his story? Okay, so let's get started with 1 Samuel 17, Goliath challenges the Israelites. Verse 1. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Sukkot in Judah and Azekah at Ephesdemim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troop near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine 
feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Okay, so pause there. Just imagine from that description what Goliath looked like. How tall was he? Visualize that. Visualize maybe your favorite NBA player. They could be, I don't know, 6'5", maybe all the way up to 7 feet tall. Goliath was even taller than that by 2 or 3 feet. What was he wearing? If you saw him, how would you feel? Would you be scared? Would you be nervous? Or would you not be intimidated at all? Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the army of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Okay, so pause there. What is Goliath asking them to do? Why are the Philistines here trying to fight the Israelites? What's the conflict going on between them? Do you think Goliath will be defeated? The next section is Jesse sends David to Saul's camp. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For forty days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers, and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon, the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. 
Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Okay, so pause there. Why has Saul, the king, offered such a big reward for anyone who can kill Goliath? Why is Goliath such a big problem for the Israelites? Verse 26. David asked the soldier standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Okay, so pause there. Think about David's response, the questions that he just asked. What do we learn about David's devotion to God in his response? Verse 27. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men. He was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now? David replied. I I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. Okay, so pause there. Why was David's oldest brother angry with David? Why do you think his oldest brother said something about David being prideful and deceitful? Do you think that's an accurate description of David's character? Is there something about him we don't know? Or is that coming from his brother because his brother is angry? What do you guys think about that? Then we have Saul sending for David. Why do you think that is? What do you think he wants to talk to David about? The next section is David kills Goliath, which is a section title that kind of gives away the end, but I think we all saw where this was going. So let's start this next section, verse 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear come to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. So pause there. Again, what are we learning here about David and his relationship with God, and how seriously he takes God and his kingdom.
Are you surprised that Saul is letting David try and kill Goliath? Verse 38, then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Okay, so pause there. What do you guys think about David right now? What is he wearing into battle? Is he wearing any armor or any protective gear at all? I mean, what is his weapon of choice? Why do you think David is able to be so confident, even though he's the underdog? Are there times in your life when you felt like the underdog? Like there was no way you were going to succeed at the task God had called you to? How can you learn from David to draw your confidence from God? How can we align ourselves so closely with God that nothing seems impossible when we are following the path he's called us to? And does that mean that we will always succeed in the way that we think we should succeed? Or will there be times when we fail? Will there be times when we think we're going the right way and it turns into a complete disaster? There will be times when we have experiences like David, where we run into battle full force and succeed. And there will be times when we see characters in the Bible who run full force into battle and don't succeed. But God is with them. God is always with them through that. And so what can we learn from these different types of experiences we see the people of the Bible go through? Verse 41. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog? He roared at David. That you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You have come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. 
He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. Okay, so pause there. What do you think of the fight? What do you think of this final battle between David and Goliath? How did God use David to defeat Goliath? And how was God a part of this battle? And why do you think it's important for David, who's going to be the king of Israel, to have victory in battle? Why do you think this needs to be part of his story as God is preparing him to be king? Okay, the next section is Israel routs the Philistines. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. As Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. We'll find out who he is, the king told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, His name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 17. What do you think is going through Saul's head? Why is he so curious about who David is and who David's father is? And why do you think Saul doesn't recognize David as the boy who was playing harp for him when he had that spirit, that turbulent spirit within him? Okay, so now we can start the next chapter, 1 Samuel 18 which is called Saul Becomes Jealous of David. Chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact, by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. Okay, so pause there. What is going on in David's life right now? After he killed Goliath, what happens to him? Why do you think David has been given this important office 
in the king's army. And then what do you think about David's relationship with Jonathan, the king's son? Why do you think they had such a close bond? Do you think David's relationship with Jonathan is going to have a big impact over his life? And do you think it's going to impact his relationship with Saul? Verse 6. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Okay, so pause there. Think about what those women just sang. How do you think that's going to impact Saul? And how do you think that's going to impact David? And do you think that's going to put a strain on their relationship? Because what does that song tell us about the Israelites' perception of David and their perception of Saul? Verse 8. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. Okay, so pause there. What is going on right now within Saul? What emotions is he experiencing? How does he feel toward David? What do his actions tell us about him? How is God working in the midst of this conflict? And what about David? How is David reacting during this time? How is David acting during this time? What are his actions telling us about him? Okay, verse 14. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Saul was able to realize that the Lord was with David and had left him? Why is that significant to Saul? Why is that significant to David? The next section is David marries Saul's daughter. Verse 17. One day, Saul said to David, I am ready to give you my older daughter, Mirab, as your wife. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him, rather than doing it myself. Okay, so pause there. First of all, why does Saul want David dead? 
And what does it tell us about his character? One, that he wants him dead, and two, that he's not willing to do it himself. Verse 18. Who am I? And what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David exclaimed. My father's family is nothing. So, when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Mirab in marriage to David, he gave her instead to Adriel, a man from Mahola. In the meantime, Saul's daughter Michael had fallen in love with David, and Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David, he said, Today you have a second chance to be my son-in-law. Then Saul told his men to say to David, The king really likes you, and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, How can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, Tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. David was delighted to accept the offer before the time limit expired. He and his men went out and killed two hundred Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commander of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 18. How much energy so far has Saul spent trying to kill David? Why do you think Saul has not been successful? Why do you think David has been so successful in battle and in war and been able to accomplish everything that Saul has asked of him? Who is guiding David? Who is the driving force behind David? And then what has been slowly happening to Saul internally? What is his character becoming? We know how he was as king, and he still is king, but we know the terrible things that the Israelites have gone through while Saul has been king. But now that David has arrived, what else has been happening to Saul internally? How is he feeling? How is he acting? What is he fixating on now? Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel chapter 19, which starts with the section called Saul Tries to Kill David. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, 
You must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll ask my father to go out there with me, and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant, David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He has always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant? And how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result. You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There is no reason for it at all. Okay, so pause there. Why does Saul want to kill David? And then why is Jonathan, Saul's son, so motivated to protect David? How do you think Saul's going to react to what Jonathan said about David? Do you think that's going to persuade Saul? Verse 6. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. Afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul, and David served in the court as before. War broke out again after that, and David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. But one day, when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Okay, so pause there. Again, we have that tormenting spirit coming upon Saul. Why did he react this way and try to kill David after that tormenting spirit came upon him. And again, it says that tormenting spirit was from the Lord. So is the Lord causing Saul to act this way? Again, that might be a confusing section to read. And so it might be good to sit with these questions of why is God sending this tormenting spirit? What do we know of Saul and what do we know of God? And taking that information, how can we find and understand the truth of what's going on in the story? The next section is Michael saves David's life. Verse 11. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair at its head. When the troops came to arrest David, she told them he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered, Bring him to me in his bed, so I can kill him. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair at its head. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? Saul demanded of Michael. I had to, Michael replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Okay, so pause there. What's just happened in this story? First of all, why do you think Michael helped David escape? Verse 12. 
And then when she's confronted by Saul, does she tell him the truth or does she lie? Why do you think Michael lies to Saul in this moment? What do you think is going to happen to Michael because of what she's done? What do you think is going to happen to David? Verse 18. So David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. Then Samuel took David with him to live at Naoth. When the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But when they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also began to prophesy. When Saul heard what had happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. The same thing happened a third time. Finally, Saul himself went to Ramah and arrived at the great well in Seku. Where are Samuel and David? he demanded. They are at Naioth in Ramah, someone told him. But on the way to Naioth in Ramah, the Spirit of God came even upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. All the way to Naioth. He tore off his clothes and lay naked on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. The people who were watching exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 19. Why do you think God sent his spirit upon the army? Who was he trying to protect? What were all of these people doing once the Spirit of God came upon them? What do you think they were prophesying about? Are you surprised that Saul also prophesied? Did it seem like the people were surprised that Saul was prophesying? Why were the people surprised that Saul was a prophet in this moment? What do you think God is trying to do right now? Why do you think he had all these people, even Saul, making prophecies? What do you think it might have been like to be there during this time? Would it have been a very powerful experience or maybe even scary? What do you think it would have been like to be a part of this scene? Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel 20, which begins with a section called Jonathan Helps David. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now David fled from Naioth in Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? he exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Then David took an oath before Jonathan and said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you 
then I'm only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. David replied, Tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. I've always eaten with the king on this occasion, but tomorrow I'll hide in the field and stay there until the evening of the third day. If your father asks where I am, tell him I ask permission to go home to Bethlehem for an annual family sacrifice. If he says, fine, you will know all is well. But if he is angry and loses his temper, you will know he is determined to kill me. Show me this loyalty as my sworn friend, for we made a solemn pact before the Lord. Or kill me yourself if I have sinned against your father, but please don't betray me to him. Never, Jonathan exclaimed. You know that if I had the slightest notion that my father was planning to kill you, I would tell you at once. Then David asked, How will I know whether or not your father is angry? Come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied. And they went out there together. Then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow, or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I will let you know. But if he is angry and wants you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said, Tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. You will be missed when your place at the table is empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid before and wait there by the stone pile. I will come out and shoot three arrows to the side of the stone pile as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy to bring the arrows back. If you hear me tell him, they're on this side, then you will know as surely as the Lord lives that all is well and there is no trouble. But if I tell him, go farther, the arrows are still ahead of you, then it will mean that you must leave immediately, for the Lord is sending you away. Then may the Lord make us keep our promises to each other, for he has witnessed them. Okay, so pause there. What are we learning about Jonathan and David's friendship? How close are they? How important are they in each other's lives? Do you have a friendship like Jonathan and David where the two of you are very close and build each other up in the Lord and protect each other from harm? What do you think Jonathan's motivation is to protect David at all costs and to keep his promises? Do you think their plan is going to work? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think Jonathan's going to have to warn David to run? Or do you think David will be safe and can stay where he is? As we see this friendship, what can it teach us about our friendships in our lives? What does it look like to have a godly friendship and to live in community with each other? 
What does God call us to be like in relationship? And how can we see Jonathan and David as an example of who we should be in relationship with each other? Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall, with Jonathan sitting opposite him and Abner beside him. But David's place was empty. Saul didn't say anything about it that day, for he said to himself, something must have made David ceremonially unclean. But when David's place was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we are having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there. So please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a rebellious woman, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Okay, so pause there. What did this scene just reveal about Saul's intentions? Are you surprised that Saul is intending to kill David? Why do you think Saul tries to kill Jonathan? What are we learning about Saul's character when we read about his reaction to David not being there and how he treats Jonathan, his son? What do you think is going to happen as a result of this encounter? What do you think is going to happen to David, to Jonathan, and to Saul? Verse 34. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. The next morning, as agreed... Jonathan went out into the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back to town. Okay, so pause there. What signal did Jonathan give David? And what did Jonathan's signal mean? What do you think David's going to do after hearing this signal? Verse 41. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. 
Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. Okay, so now we can jump into 1 Samuel 21, the next chapter, which is called, or starts with, the section called, David Runs from Saul. Chapter 21, verse 1. David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone? he asked. Why is no one with you? The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I have told my men where to meet me later. Now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We don't have any regular bread, the priest replied. There is the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men to be with women when we are on a campaign. And since they stay clean, even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? Since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. Now Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. David asked Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, the priest replied. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there's nothing else here. There is nothing like it, David replied. Give it to me. So David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. But the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land? They asked. Isn't he the one the people honor with dances? Singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands? David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on the doors and drooling down his beard. Finally, King Achish said to his men, Must you bring me a madman? We've already had enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 21. That was a very short chapter. What do you think David is doing in this section? What do you think he's planning in response to finding out that Saul is trying to kill him? Why do you think David became afraid when he heard everyone talking about him and reciting that song that people were singing about him where they said that Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? Why do you think hearing people talk about him like that made him afraid? And then in response to that, why do you think David started acting like a madman? And then what do you think David's going to do next? Do you think he's going to leave this town and go to another one? Do you think he's going to stay here? What do you think his plan is? Okay, now we can start 
chapter 22, 1 Samuel 22, which starts with a section called David at the Cave of Ajalom. Chapter 22, verse 1. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Ajalom. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt, or who were just discontented, until David was the captain of about 400 men. Okay, so pause there. What's going on here? David is escaping to this cave of Ajalom, and then all these people start coming, his family, other men. Why do you think people are drawn to David? Why do you think people are coming to David? And now it says that he's the captain of about 400 men. What does that mean, he's the captain of these men? And why do you think this is happening? Is this part of God's plan? Is this something that God is allowing to happen to kind of prepare David for being king? Verse 3. Later, David went to Mizpah in Moab, where he asked the king, Please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during the entire time David was living in his stronghold. One day, the prophet of Gad told David, Leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah. So David went to the forest of Hereth. The news of his arrival in Judah soon reached Saul. At the time, the king was sitting beneath the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, holding his spear and surrounded by his officers. Okay, so pause there. What did David do when the prophet told him to go to Judah? Did he go straight to Judah or did he do something else? The fact that David listened to the prophet and went straight to Judah, what does that tell us about David and his desire to listen and to stay true to God. And then what do you think is going through David's mind right now? He's told to go to Judah, and then what's waiting for him when he gets there? Do you think David feels confident that he can defeat these people, or do you think he's nervous and scared? Verse 7. Listen here, you men of Benjamin, Saul shouted to his officers when he heard the news. Has the son of Jesse promised every one of you fields and vineyards? Has he promised to make you all generals and captains in his army? Is that why you have conspired against me? For not one of you told me when my own son made a solemn pact with the son of Jesse. You're not even sorry for me. Think of it, my own son, encouraging him to kill me as he is trying to do this very day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. When I was at Nob, he said, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest Ahimelech, son Ahitub. Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him. Then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Okay, so pause there. What do you think of Saul's speech to his people? What is he trying to tell them? What is he angry about? What are his motivations? And is he showing evidence of a close relationship with God or is he showing evidence 
of a distant relationship with God and a spirit of self-preservation and fear. And then what was the purpose of Doeg the Edomite speaking up? What is he telling Saul about David? The next section is the slaughter of the priests. Verse 11, King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. When they arrived, Saul shouted at him, Listen to me, you son of a he-tube. What is it, my king? Ahimelech asked. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul demanded. Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me, as he is trying to do this very day? But, but sir, Ahimelech replied, is anyone among all your servants as faithful as David, your son-in-law? Why, he is the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time I had consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this matter, for I knew nothing at all of any plot against you. You will surely die, Ahimelech, along with your entire family, the king shouted, and he ordered his bodyguards, Kill the priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priests. Okay, so pause there. Why does Saul want to kill the priests? What does he think they've done to him? Is Saul justified or is he making up some sort of conspiracy against him in his head? And then why do you think his people refuse to kill the Lord's priests? Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day. Eighty-five priests in all, still wearing their priestly garments. Then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and killed the priests' families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. Only Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to David. When he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Doeg the Edomite there that day, I knew he was sure to tell Saul. Now I have caused the death of all your father's families. Stay here with me and don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life, for the same person wants to kill us both. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Doeg the Edomite was motivated to kill the priests? Why do you think he was the one person who chose to perform this heinous crime? How do you think David is going to respond to this slaughter? Do you think David will fulfill this promise to protect himself and the final remaining priest? Okay, so now we can start chapter 23, 1 Samuel 23, which starts with a section called David Protects the Town of Keilah. 
Chapter 23, verse 1. One day, news came to David that the Philistines were at Keilah, stealing grain from the threshing floors. David asked the Lord, Should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Keilah, the Lord told him. But David's men said, We're afraid, even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Keilah to fight the whole Philistine army. So David asked the Lord again, and again the Lord replied, Go down to Keilah, for I will help you conquer the Philistines. So David and his men went to Keilah. They slaughtered the Philistines and took all their livestock and rescued the people of Keilah. Now when Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he brought the ephod with him. Saul soon learned that David was at Keilah. Good, he exclaimed. We've got him now. God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself in a walled town. So Saul mobilized his entire army to march at Keilah and besiege David and his men. Okay, so pause there. Think about what David did when he heard that the Philistines were attacking Keilah. Who did he ask for counsel? And who spoke to David and gave him counsel? And then we have Saul learning that David was at Keilah. And he says that he's glad because now he can attack David because he's in a walled town. But what does Saul say? Who does he say has handed David over to him? Is Saul correct in saying that God handed David over to him? Or do you think that's not true? Verse 9, But David learned of Saul's plan and told Abiathar the priest to bring the ephod and ask the Lord what he should do. Then David prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, I have heard that Saul is planning to come and destroy Keilah because I am here. Will the leaders of Keilah betray me to him? And will Saul actually come as I have heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell me. And the Lord said, he will come. Again, David asked, Will the leaders of Keilah betray me and my men to Saul? And the Lord replied, Yes, they will betray you. So pause there. Who does David reach out to? Who does David again ask for counsel? And what does that tell us about David's commitment to the Lord and the Lord's commitment to David? The next section is David hides in the wilderness. Verse 13. So David and his men, about 600 of them now, left Keilah and began roaming the countryside. Word soon reached Saul that David had escaped, so he didn't go to Keilah after all. David now stayed in the strongholds of the wilderness and in the hill country of Ziph. Saul hunted him day after day, but God didn't let Saul find him. One day, Near Horesh, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel and I will be next to you as my father, Saul, is well aware. So the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. 
Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horesh. Okay, so pause there. We see this small interaction between Jonathan and David, but what does that teach us about friendship? What kind of friendship did Jonathan and David have? How does Jonathan encourage David in his faith and his relationship with God? In our own friendships, how should we be talking to each other and encouraging each other in the faith and reminding each other of the truths that God has promised each of us? And does Jonathan have a deep understanding of David's life, who he is, and where he's going? Has God ever revealed something to you about people in your life? Can you look at people you love and see things about them, gifts that they have, see where they're going, what strengths they have that God has given them, and how can you encourage them in that? Verse 19, But now the men of Ziph went to Saul in Gibeah and betrayed David to him. We know where David is hiding, they said. He is in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hekilah, which is in the southern part of Jeshimon. Come down whenever you're ready, O king, and we will catch him and hand him over to you. The Lord bless you, Saul said. At last someone is concerned about me. Go and check again to be sure of where he is staying and who has seen him there, for I know that he is very crafty. Discover his hiding places and come back when you are sure. Then I'll go with you. And if he is in the area at all, I'll track him down. Even if I have to search every hiding place in Judah. So the men of Ziph returned home ahead of Saul. Meanwhile, David and his men had moved into the wilderness of Maon in the Arba Valley, south of Jeshimon. When David heard that Saul and his men were searching for him, he went even farther into the wilderness to get the rock, and he remained there in the wilderness of Maon. But Saul kept after him in the wilderness. Saul and David were now on opposite sides of a mountain. Just as Saul and his men began to close in on David and his men, an urgent message reached Saul that the Philistines were raiding Israel again. So Saul quit chasing David and returned to fight the Philistines. Ever since that time, the place where David was camped has been called the Rock of Escape. David then went to live in the strongholds of on Okay, so now we can transition into the next chapter, which is 1 Samuel 24. And this starts with a section called David Spares Saul's Life. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of An Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now's the opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, 
I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with what you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Okay, so pause there. Why did David spare Saul's life? Again, here, what are we learning about David and his relationship with God? Are you surprised that he spared Saul's life, considering all the things that Saul had done to him? What does this teach us about how we should treat people even if they're our enemies? What did David see in Saul that made him pause and spare his life? What did David hear within himself that made him pause and spare Saul's life? The rest of verse 7. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing the one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. Okay, so pause there. What did you learn from David's speech that he just gave? What did you learn about David? What did you learn about Saul? What did you learn about God? What did you learn about how to treat your enemies? What did you learn about grace? What do you think Saul is going to do in response? Verse 16, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry, and he said to David, 
You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. Okay, so pause there. What did you think about Saul's response? Why did we see such a drastic change in Saul? Just a few minutes ago, just a chapter ago, just a few chapters ago, he was trying to kill David. He was ready for revenge. He was ready to kill David. And now, he's ready to let David be king. Why is that? What changed? How did you see God working through this? What does that teach us about how powerful grace can be when we accept God's grace and allow God to give his grace to other people through us? and the way that we treat each other. In your life, how can you listen to David's story and learn from it? How can you pause in your moments where you desire revenge or to harm someone who is harmed to you and pivot and give them the grace that God has given you? How can you practice that in your life? How can you seek closeness with God so that he gives you the strength to practice that kind of grace? Okay, so now we can transition to the next chapter, which is 1 Samuel 25, and it starts with a section called The Death of Samuel. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died... And all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. The next section is Nabal angers David. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Maon. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal. And his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message from Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. 
David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered from my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then four hundred men started off with David, and two hundred remained behind to guard their equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, Go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, A lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Okay, so pause there. What do you think is going on in this story? Why do you think it's included right after the situation between Saul and David? Why is David so bent on getting revenge on Nabal. Okay, the next section is Abigail intercedes for Nabal. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please, don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and you yourself live, since the lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. 
when the Lord has done all he has promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Abigail is trying to intercede for Nabal? What do you think about her speech? Do you think it will persuade David? Verse 32. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive in the morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Okay, so pause there. Why did David change his mind? Why did he decide not to seek vengeance on Nabal? Why do you think it took Abigail coming to David and giving him this plea for him to decide to spare Nabal's life? Why didn't he come to that decision on his own? How does God use other people in our lives to help us make the right decision to give us wisdom and to see things that sometimes we can't see. Verse 36. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. As a result, he had a stroke, and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck him, and he died. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Nabal had a stroke after he heard what happened? And then why do you think he ended up dying? It says that the Lord struck him, and he died. Why do you think God made that decision? Okay, the next section is David marries Abigail. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. She bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave, washing the feet of his servants. Quickly getting ready, she took along five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam from Jezreel, making both of them his wives. Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to a man from Gollum, named Palti, son of Laish. 
Okay, so pause there because that's an interesting turn of events. Are you surprised by the fact that David marries Abigail? Because didn't David already have a wife named Michael? What happened to her? Do you think that we will see Michael again? And then what do you think about the fact that David also has these other wives? Do you think this is something God approves of? Or is it recorded here because it's what actually happened, whether God approved of it or not? And then you might ask yourself, well, if God doesn't approve of having multiple spouses, why doesn't he say something here? Why isn't there a phrase or something that says God condemned that David had multiple wives? That's a good question to ask. It's a tough question to ask. And it's one that you may want to sit with and think on and ask yourself, why do all these characters in the Old Testament have multiple wives, but they're not necessarily actively condemned for it if it's something that God does not desire for our lives. And then what does this teach us about David? Is he perfect or does he also have flaws, aspects of his life where he's fallen? Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel chapter 26. And this chapter starts with a section called David Spares Saul Again. So chapter 26, verse 1. Now some men from Ziph came to Saul at Gibeah to tell him, David is hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which overlooks Jeshman. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hakalah, near Jeshman, where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies to verify the report of Saul's arrival. David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. Who will volunteer to go in there with me? David asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruah, Joab's brother. I'll go with you. Abishai replied. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep, with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. No, David said. Don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down some day, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed, but take his spear and that jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. Okay, so pause there. Why did David spare Saul again? How do we see David putting his trust in God? And if David was going to spare Saul again, if David knew he wasn't going to kill Saul, why did he go there in the first place? 
verse 12. So David took the spear and jug of water that were near Saul's head. Then he and Abishai got away without anyone seeing them or even waking up because the Lord had put Saul's men into a deep sleep. David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was at a safe distance. Then he shouted to the soldiers and to Abner, son of Ner, Wake up, Abner! Who is it? Abner demanded. Well, Abner, you're a great man, aren't you? David taunted. Where in all Israel is there anyone as mighty? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where are the king's spears and the jug of water that were beside his head? Saul recognized David's voice and called out, Is that you, my son, David? And David replied, Yes, my lord, the king. Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? But now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme... Then may those involved be cursed by the Lord, for he has driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people. And they have said, Go worship pagan gods. Must I die on foreign soil far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come out to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge on the mountains? Then Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool and very, very wrong. Okay, so pause there. Why is David confronting Saul? And then what is Saul's response to David? Do you think Saul truly has seen the error of his ways? Do you think Saul is going to stop trying to kill or harm David? Do you think David is going to start trusting Saul? Verse 22. Here's your spear, O king, David replied. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and for being loyal, and I refuse to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power, for you are the Lord's anointed one. Now may the Lord value my life even as I have valued yours today. May he rescue me from all my troubles. And Saul said to David, Blessings on you, my son David. You will do many heroic deeds, and you will surely succeed. Then David went away, and Saul returned home. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 26. Why do you think that neither David nor Saul ever killed each other? Did they both have opportunities where they could have? And did they both come to realizations that they shouldn't or wouldn't kill the other? Why do you think Saul never killed David? Why do you think David never killed Saul? 
What did David himself say many times when he had the opportunity? What do you think God is preparing in this story? We know that David will become king. And so how do all of these events lead up to David's anointing as king? Why do you think David had to go through all these different events before he would become king of Israel? Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel 27, which is called David Among the Philistines. Chapter 27, verse 1. But David kept thinking to himself, Someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory and I will finally be safe. So David took his 600 men and went over and joined Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men and their families settled there with Achish at Gath. David brought his two wives along with him, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow from Carmel. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. One day, David said to Achish, If it is all right with you, we would rather live in one of the country towns instead of here in the royal city. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag, which still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. And they lived there among the Philistines for a year and four months. David and his men spent their time raiding the Jeshurites, the Grizzites, and the Amalekites, people who had lived near Shur, toward the land of Egypt since ancient times. David did not leave one person alive in the villages he attacked. He took the sheep, goats, cattle, donkeys, camels, and clothing before returning to see King Achish. Okay, so pause there. Why did Saul stop hunting for David when he fled to Gath? And then when David fled, why did he spend all of his time raiding these different towns? Verse 10. Where did you make your raid today? Achish would ask, and David would reply, Against the south of Judah, the Jeromelites, and the Kenites. No one was left alive to come to Gath and tell where he had really been. This happened again and again while he was living among the Philistines. Achish believed David and thought to himself, By now the people of Israel must hate him bitterly. Now he will have to stay here and serve me forever. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 27. Where was David raiding? And then where did Achish think David was raiding? Why do you think David lied to Achish about where he was? Was Achish a Philistine? And who were the people David was actually attacking? What nation were they from? And what nation did Achish think David was attacking? So what do you think David is doing here? What is his strategy? Why is he hiding among the Philistines? 
Okay, so now we can transition into 1 Samuel 28, which starts with a section called Saul Consults a Medium. Chapter 28, verse 1. About that time, the Philistines mustered their armies for another war with Israel. King Achish told David, You and your men will be expected to join me in battle. Very well, David agreed. Now you will see for yourself what we can do. Then Achish told David, I will make you my personal bodyguard for life. Okay, so pause there. Who is Achish asking David to fight? Is David loyal to the Israelites? What is he going to do in this situation? Verse 3. Meanwhile, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him. He was buried in Ramah, his hometown. And Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. The Philistines set up their camp at Shunem, and Saul gathered all the army of Israel and camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. He asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or by sacred lots or by prophets. Saul then said to his advisors, Find a woman who is a medium, so I can go and ask her what to do. His advisors replied, There is a medium at Endor. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think God refused to answer Saul? What do you think Saul should have done in response to God's silence? Why do you think Saul decided to turn to a medium, someone who consults with spirits instead of waiting on God? What do you think about Saul's decision? How do you think it's going to play out? What do you think is going to happen because of this choice he makes? Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Saul had to disguise himself to go meet this woman? Verse 9. Are you trying to get me killed? The woman demanded. You know that Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, As surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Okay, so pause there. Do you think that Saul has the authority to make a promise like that? Is he bringing God's name into something that God disapproves of? Why do you think mediums and people who consult with the spirits were outlawed in the first place? Is that something that God asks us not to participate in? Verse 11. Finally, the woman said, Well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, You you have deceived me. You are Saul. 
don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? I see a god coming up out of the earth, she said. What does he look like? Saul asked. He's a, an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel, and he fell to the ground before him. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Because I am in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me, and God has left me, and won't reply by prophets or dreams, so I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, Why ask me, since the Lord has left you and become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival, David. The Lord has done this to you today because you refused to carry out his fierce anger against the Amalekites. What's more, the Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. He was also faint with hunger, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. When the woman saw how distraught he was, she said, Sir, I obeyed your command at the risk of my life. Now do what I say and let me give you a little something to eat so you can regain your strength for the trip back. But Saul refused to eat anything. Then his advisors joined the woman in urging him to eat, so he finally yielded and got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had been fattening a calf, so she hurried out and killed it, and she took some flour, kneaded it into dough, and baked unleavened bread. She brought the meal to Saul and his advisors, and they ate it. Then they went out into the night. Okay, so pause there. This is a very strange story, or it might seem strange. But first, let's think about what did Samuel tell Saul? What message did he give him? What's going to happen to Saul and his army when they fight the Philistines? Is this in line with what God said would happen earlier in the book? Why do you think God wouldn't tell Samuel this himself through prophets or sacred lots? And then let's pivot to the other portion of this section. The fact that this woman summoned the spirit of Samuel, a man who is already dead. What do you guys think about that? How did Samuel react when he showed up after he was summoned? Why do you think this is something that God says we should not participate in? Are you surprised that this woman was able to do something like this? Do you think that Samuel's appearance was actually Samuel? Is there any evidence in what we read 
that tells us that this was actually Samuel appearing to them. When Samuel gave his message, was his message true? Was his message accurate? Was his message in line with what we already know is going to happen to Saul? Did Samuel speak truth to Saul? Do you think God used this moment, even though contacting the dead through a medium is something we're not supposed to do? It's something that God has asked us not to do. Do you think God still used this moment to communicate with Saul? And if you think that, why do you think that is? Why do you think God would use something like this to still communicate with Saul? And then what do you think Saul should have done? Clearly, Saul appealed to God and God did not answer him. And Saul decided to take matters into his own hands. But what do you think he should have done? When we pray to God and we feel like we don't hear an answer or we don't know what God is trying to tell us, what do we do? Do we turn to things of this world to try to find answers ourselves? Or do we stay true to God and continue praying and continue asking him? How do we stay faithful to God when we feel like we can't hear what he's saying? This is a challenge to really think about in your own life, how you can live in that tension in a healthy way. When you pray and you feel like you don't get an answer and you feel that tension, what are you supposed to do? How do you stay faithful to God? Because you can. You can definitely stay faithful to God and continue pursuing God because he is pursuing you. And sometimes the answer is that there isn't one. Or the answer is no, or the answer isn't what you think it's going to be. But does that mean that God isn't there? This is just something that's really good to think on as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and meet challenges like the ones that the people who came before us have met and learn from them and learn with them and see how you will respond in your own life. Okay, so now we can start 1 Samuel 29, which starts with a section called The Philistines Reject David. Chapter 29, verse 1. The entire Philistine army now mobilized at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers were leading out their troops in groups of hundreds and thousands, David and his men marched at the rear with King Achish. But the Philistine commanders demanded, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish told them, This is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years, and I've never found a single fault in him from the day he arrived until today. But the Philistine commanders were angry. Send him back to the town you've given him, they demanded. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? 
Isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sing in their dances? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay, so pause there. Why is the Philistine army concerned that David is fighting with them? Why isn't King Achish concerned about David? Should they be concerned about David and the fact that he is fighting with the Philistines now? Verse 6. So Achish finally summoned David and said to him, I swear by the Lord that you have been a trustworthy ally. I think you should go with me into battle, for I've never found a single flaw in you from the day you arrived until today. But the other Philistine rulers won't hear of it. Please don't upset them, but go back quietly. What have I done to deserve this treatment? David demanded. What have you ever found in your servant that I can't go and fight the enemies of my lord, the king? But Achish insisted, As far as I'm concerned, you're as perfect as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders are afraid to have you with them in the battle. Now get up early in the morning and leave with your men as soon as it gets light. So David and his men headed back into the land of the Philistines while the Philistine army went on to Jezreel. Okay, so pause there. Why was David immediately angry when King Achish told him to leave? Why did he react the way he did? Do you think David is really on the Philistines' side? Or do you think this is part of his plan to infiltrate the Philistines and protect the Israelites? And why is Achish insisting that David leave with his men? And why do you think David went along with him and said, okay, we're going to go back and I'm going to take my men and the Philistines are going to go into Jezreel and I'm going to do what King Achish asked me to do? What do you think David is planning? And do you think that this is going to make him have to change his plan? What do you think David is going to do in response to this? Okay, so that was actually the end of 1 Samuel 29, and now we can transition into 1 Samuel 30, which starts with a section called David Destroys the Amalekites. So chapter 30, verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had crushed the Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. Okay, so pause there. Why were David and his men weeping? What does that teach us about David and his men and their connection with their people? Verse 5. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. 
David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Okay, so pause there. Who did David find strength in? What does that teach us about David? Where is he putting his faith and trust? What can we learn from David's example? Verse 7, Then he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, Should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, Yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think the Lord said to David, yes, go after these people? Verse 9. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook at Bezor. But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. To whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, he replied. My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carathites in the Negev, the territory of Judah, in the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. Will you lead me to this band of raiders? David asked. The young man replied, If you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I will guide you to them. So he led David to them. And they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines in the land of Judah. David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire day until evening. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. Okay, so pause there. How did David save his people? Did David do this alone, or was the Lord with him? And then why did everyone say that the plunder belonged to David? Verse 21. Then David returned to the brook Bezor, and met up with the two hundred men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. They went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and children and tell them to be gone. But David said, No, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike. 
those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this a decree and regulation for Israel, and it is still followed today. Okay, so pause there. First of all, why do you think some of the men were angry that the people who stayed behind were still going to receive some of the plunder that they had recovered? And then why do you think David said no? They should still be allowed to have some of the plunder that we got back in battle. What can we learn from David in this story? What can we learn about grace and mercy? How do you see God treating you this way in your own life, giving you things that Maybe other people think you don't deserve. Maybe you yourself think you don't deserve. But God still gives them to you anyway. How is what David did here countercultural? How does it go against what the normal culture or the people around the Israelites or even some of the Israelites themselves believe or do on a daily basis? How does it go against our human nature. Verse 26. When he arrived at Ziklag, David sent part of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends. Here is a present for you taken from the Lord's enemies, he said. The gifts were sent to the people of the following towns David had visited, Bethel, Ramoth-Negev, Jatir, Aror, Sifmoth, Eshtemoah, Rockel, the towns of the Jeramilites, the towns of the Kenites, Horma, Bor-Ashan, Athok, Hebron, and all the other places David and his men had visited. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David gave part of the plunder to the elders of Judah? And then why were the gifts sent to these other towns that David and his men had visited? Okay, so our final chapter that we're about to start is 1 Samuel 31. This is the last chapter of 1 Samuel, and this is all about the death of Saul. This seems to be something that we've kind of been leading up to this entire book because it's been leading up to when David will take over as king. So let's go ahead and start with 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Okay, so pause there. We just heard that Saul's son, Jonathan, died. Do you remember who Jonathan was? Was Jonathan someone who was close with David? Do you think news of this might affect David? How do you think it might affect Saul? Verse 3. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. Saul groaned to his armor-bearer, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. 
but his armor-bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Saul pleaded with his armor-bearer to kill him? And then we see Saul falling on his own sword and dying. Why do you think he was in such distress that he made this decision? Think about the life of Saul and all the things that have happened in his life. Are you surprised that this is how his life ends? Or did you think that it was going to be another way? Or did you think he wouldn't die? Does this scene here surprise you in any way? Verse 5. When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think the armor bearer fell on his sword immediately after he saw that Saul was dead? What does that tell us about the relationship between Saul and his armor bearer? Verse 7. When the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. The next day, when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Geboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the lands of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshan. Okay, so pause there. Why was Saul's death good news to the Philistines? And then why do you think the Philistines went through this ritual of taking off his armor, cutting off his head, and fastening his body to the wall of the city? How do you think the people of Israel are going to react to this? Verse 11. But when the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies. Then they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. Okay, so pause there at the end of First Samuel. Who are the Jabesh Gilead people, and why did they come and get Saul and his son's bodies when they heard what the Philistines had done? Why do you think they went through this ritual of burning the bodies and burying the bones? And then, why did they fast for seven days after they had buried the bones? What did these actions tell you about the motivations of these people from Jabesh Gilead and how they felt about Saul and his sons? 
How do you think the Israelites are going to respond to the death of their king? What do you think is going to happen in 2 Samuel as our story continues? Where is David? What do you think is going through his mind now that the king is dead and all of his sons are dead? Will a new king rise up? Will there be new leadership in the Israelites? How will God continue leading the Israelites? Well, we will find out all the answers to these questions next time as we start 2 Samuel. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. It was very long, but this was a very long section from 1 Samuel. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for reading along with me. And thank you for reaching out. I appreciate all the kind words. And I will talk to you in the next one.